getting ready to go to bed, and I felt this in my throat, like somebody had taken a thing and put it around my neck and started screwing it tight. And I thought, I think I'm getting sick. And then every day this week has been a little worse. And it was one of those weeks, you have one of those weeks where you just can't be sick, no matter what. It was that uh, all week this week. And uh, Thursday, Wednesday night I preached. Thursday morning I had almost no voice. And I contacted a couple of our guys and said, be prepared to preach. I'm thankful we have guys that can do that. And uh, we're willing to be ready uh, for that. You might get to hear from one of them tonight. I think you will. Uh, but anyway, I really wanted to preach because I wanted to finish this series. And um, the, the gospel according to Matthew is really a wonderful thing. We'll look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11. I realize that many uh, divide it and include verse 12 in that, but we'll just be looking at the first 11 verses. And this morning I want to preach to you on the threat of his birth. Now I understand it's painful to listen to someone who's preaching with half a voice. And so I hope you'll bear with me and be able to glean the message from the Word of God uh, without a lot of attention to uh, the vocalarity of the speaker. Now Matthew 2, let's stand together as we consider the threat of his birth, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when he had found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for the details surrounding your birth that you've included in the sacred record of the gospel. And I pray that all of us would receive these things as significant and important to us in our Christian lives today, in our understanding 
of the gift of salvation that was given through the incarnation of Christ. I pray that we would hear and would believe and understand, Lord, that more than just having a knowledge of these things and all the detail, I pray that the, the details you've included in the story would shape our understanding of you and in return would shape the way that we live our Christian lives and the way we conduct ourselves in this world and the expectations that we have uh, for a life around us. And I pray that we would be able, uh, by your grace, to shape and impact our world just as your gospel has shaped us in our everyday lives. I pray that you would help me, that you would uh, first enable me to, uh, to preach the entire sermon and uh, to convey the message of it to your people. And I pray then also that we would receive the word gladly and that we would believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Matthew ignores much that Luke includes in his story, and in return, Luke ignores much that Matthew includes. It's interesting that there is some overlap between the two stories. We know that they're telling the same story. There are the same details uh, where Christ is born uh, and uh, the, the timing of the birth and so on. But Luke, Luke has more of a big picture. He sees, uh, he, he puts it in context of the Roman government and um, gives more of the details I pointed out to you last Sunday night, uh, the perspective that comes from Mary and much of what Luke tells you came, clearly came from Mary's account uh, of the gospel record. Some have said that Matthew is giving us Joseph's account, I, I don't think that Joseph's account would be that much different than Mary's. Uh, just that Matthew has a different uh, perspective and a different focus, a different emphasis as far as who Christ is. When I was maybe uh, a teenager and, and young adult and learning the Gospels uh, and understanding the difference between Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, um, there was a nifty little outline of those four Gospels that I was taught, and it went like this, that Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews, the Messiah King, and that Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, which is why Mark does not include any genealogy at all. Nobody cared about the birth of a slave. Nobody cared about uh, the genealogy or the lineage of a servant. And then Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. It's interesting because Matthew in this genealogy traces Christ through the kingly line of David, all the kings, and tracing back to Abraham, uh, the head of the nation of Israel. Uh, Luke traces the genealogy of Christ uh, through, we could say, uh, through Mary. Uh, there, I've seen different arguments made. I don't think that we can definitively say why Luke's genealogy 
is significantly different than Matthew's, but it is. Uh, significantly different. Um, it's possible that it is the genealogy of Mary, uh, but traces back to David. Uh, but instead of Matthew goes from David to Solomon, and Luke goes from David to his son Nathan, which is a son who is really not named in Samuel, Kings, or Chronicles. Now that's interesting too. But then Luke traces all the way back to Adam. And so you get more of the man, uh, Christ Jesus. And then John, of course, gives his, doesn't give a genealogy, but tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so John shows Jesus as the Son of God. Now, I don't know that that division of the Gospels is entirely accurate to every... I wouldn't use it as an interpretive lens, all right? But I will tell you that Matthew very clearly is demonstrating that Jesus has a rightful claim to the throne of Israel in the genealogy that he gives. But then also, the end of Matthew 1, he shows that Jesus is the Messiah King. He is not just of the kingly line of David, but he is, in fact, Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus is that. And he shows us that, and then we come to Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew shows us that Jesus was not just a born king of Israel, but that he was a rival to the, the king who was currently serving in Israel. And Matthew tells us that this is not just a fiction, this is not just an invention of the Christian mind or something that the disciples came up with later. But in fact, Herod himself recognized this threat to his kingdom and responded to it in a way that Herod himself would respond. So <clears throat> the details that Matthew focuses on and ignores uh, from what Luke from Luke's record and the details that Luke focuses on and ignores from Matthew's record it are not telling us what is important or unimportant in the story but rather tells us what God wants to emphasize in each presentation of Jesus Christ understand that the, the, the beauty of the Gospels is that they give us different perspectives of the Lord Jesus Christ, like taking a diamond and turning it over. A diamond is precious and valuable and beautiful from whatever angle you look at it. And so one gospel is going to look at it from one perspective and give you an aspect of the glories of Jesus Christ, and another gospel is going to give you another perspective. Luke focuses on uh, details from, again, I think from Mary's perspective, because they help to establish the part of Christ's life and character that Luke wants to emphasize 
to us. Matthew has a different focus. He is setting forth the proofs that Jesus is the Messiah King. He continues to go about proving it by drawing from the earthly, earthly proofs, the temporal things that prove Christ's lineage, and alongside those things, the heavenly proofs that show his deity. So he is setting side by side, really in a parallel track, to show you that Jesus is both an earthly king and a heavenly king. He is the Messiah king because he is the combination of King David's royal line and God himself, who is Israel's rightful king. You know, for many years, there was no king in Israel. And I know we all, in our minds, immediately think every man did that which was right in his own eyes. But God was Israel's king. And in fact, when Israel demanded a king, the prophet Samuel rebuked them because he rightly saw it as a desire to no longer be under the sole reign and authority of God himself, to no longer be a theocracy. Now, understand that God did not stop being Israel's king when he uh, anointed David to be Israel's king. God was still on the throne, just that Israel had an immediate king, someone else who was reigning over them. Even so, what God is doing now is saying that I'm going to vest in one person both the earthly king and the heavenly king, and I'm going to give you the Messiah king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of a Christmas story. So Matthew shows us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, <clears throat> he's already shown us Christ, Jesus Christ's connection to David through the line of the kings. And now he shows us that it's not just that. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of the kings, the city of David. He is going to be born there, further cementing his rightful claim to the throne of Israel. <clears throat> Bethlehem, by the way, is a place where, I mean, it's a historical place, even though it is, Micah calls it uh, one of the more insignificant cities uh, of Judea. Uh, Matthew says that it is not the least of the cities of Judea. Um, but but anyway, Bethlehem was, Bethlehem means the house of bread, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but it also is uh, the place where Rachel died uh, in giving birth to Beth Benjamin. It is also the place where Boaz met his wife. I, I believe Boaz, an old bachelor, who, if it continued much further, uh, would die childless and thus would end the royal seat of Judah. And then God brought along uh, a, a 
um, foreigner, a, Midian, a, a, a Moabite woman, Ruth, who herself was a widow and childless, and God gave them a son, uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. So <clears throat> Bethlehem is a significant place, significant to us today. Matthew tells us that he was born in Bethlehem and that this was not just um, the birthplace of David. The wise men looked for him in Jerusalem. Um, they were looking for the born king and it's a logical place to look in, in Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem. Now, of course, they went to Jerusalem because the star led them to Jerusalem. And I, I want to pause and say that if you read commentaries, they try to explain the wise men in logical and natural terms. But you should not forget, it's, it's one of those things that even the most conservative and faithful commentaries still overlook the supernatural nature of the star of Bethlehem the star that guided the wise men. And so you need to understand that the wise men went where the star led them, and somehow the star led them to Jerusalem, and then it disappeared. And the reason that they asked their question, which we'll read and come to in a minute, the reason they asked the question was because the star disappeared. Otherwise, they would have kept following the star. So the star disappeared so that they would ask the question. This was God at work. Understand that. The star leads them to Jerusalem. It's the city of kings. They ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Right? So that this is what's happening but Matthew tells us that he was born in Bethlehem and that this was a prophetic fulfillment. We want to know, of course, how long after Christ was born did the wise men come? Everybody wants to know. And so and I got news for you. I don't know. I'm very sure that Jesus was not 12 years old not even close to 12 years old uh, when he came. Uh, because, <clears throat> I mean, I know it says that it was a child, and I understand that a 12-year-old is probably still technically a child, but he didn't live in Bethlehem for 12 years uh, there. He lived and was raised in Nazareth. <clears throat> there is every reason to think that it was very soon after the birth of Jesus Christ. All right. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, uh, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. All right. Uh, so probably Jesus was born around 7 BC, about 7 years. And, and you might think, well, how could he be born 7 years before Christ? It's, it's a is a calendar thing. Uh, some some of the calculations got messed up 
in that and some of the early assumptions that were made about it because of course they weren't numbering their years that way when Jesus was born. Understand that. It wasn't like they were saying, huh, it's 7 BC. I wonder it, you know, what it's going to be like when Christ comes. Now, so that's one thing. Most likely, this is at the end of the life of Herod the Great. Herod <clears throat> died of a venereal disease <clears throat> because he was, like many of the kings of that day, he was uh, a rampant, uh, vile womanizer, um, and his uh, all, all his harem uh, was legendary, and uh, the particular venereal disease that we believe Herod died of was one that caused insanity, and he behaved in a very insane way. 4 BC is the time that Herod actually uh, put to death two of his sons because he saw them as rivals to his throne. And so I'm way ahead of myself here in all of this. Um, but we know that <clears throat> for sure, Herod, well, we know it wasn't 12, that we know Jesus wasn't 12 when the wise men visited because Herod was scrupulous. Herod was meticulous about his dates. And Herod wanted to make sure that his rival was put to death. And so when he ordered the death of all the male children two years old and under, you can be sure that it was not underkill on his part. It was overkill on his part. He was making sure, making sure that this baby would not survive to dethrone him later on. So <clears throat> he had all the babies two years old and underkill, so we can be sure that Jesus was not more than two years old and probably not even close to two years old at that time. Another thing <clears throat> that we should consider when it comes to this is that uh, uh, probably was not before Jesus was publicly presented in Jerusalem at the temple. Because if the wise men had come through, say, on the third day of Christ's life and caused this great uproar in Jerusalem, it would not have been safe for Mary and Joseph to go into Jerusalem at that time, given the prophetic announcements that were made by Simeon and Anna later on. It wouldn't have been safe to take him to Jerusalem after the wise men caused such an uproar. I would guess that it was in the week after his visit to the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus is born on the eighth day. He's presented in the uh, temple. He's circumcised, presented in the temple. There's this really very public, uh, among those who looked for the Messiah, that was a very public thing. But it was not public, it would not have reached the ears of the king, Herod, because he was not interested in Israel's religion at all. Not interested in it. He did not look for the Messiah to come. So I would guess, again, that it was shortly after, probably in the week after, Jesus was publicly presented uh, in the temple. Kings of the East came to visit him 
and pay homage. Now, <clears throat> the, the uh, we three kings, the Bible calls them wise men. The Greek word is magi, um, but tradition has always considered them to be kings. I don't know that they were actual kings or if they represented uh, the courts of great kingdoms in the east. I cannot say. Most likely they came from the region of Iraq. Uh, they were probably Persian kings uh, or dignitaries, I should say, uh, representatives of the kingly courts of the region of Persia, and they came to honor him. Of course, we don't know that there were only three. That's, again, a traditional view. Um, we align with the gifts uh, there, and uh, as if you've been following along in my little uh, Christmas book, uh, you notice I pointed out that someone else, I think Douglas Wilson, said that it might have been six, you know, one for each end of the gifts, uh, or something like that. Uh, I've read traditions that say uh, that there were 14 wise men. I don't know, maybe there were 52. <laughs> Who knows, we could debate it later if you're really you know, inclined uh, to discuss that. But the point is that these dignitaries from the East came to visit Christ and pay homage to him. And when they came, they honored him as their superior. The crux of Matthew chapter 2 is not what the wise men did, not what the religious authorities did, and is certainly not what Herod did. The point is what God did, what God is doing. That, by the way, is something that we easily forget when we're considering passages of Scripture, but something that we should always keep in mind. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about what God does. So when we look at Matthew 2, we look to see what God was doing here. God brought wise men from the east. He used a star to guide them. He caused the star to disappear so that they would ask their question. He made it known to Herod the Great and to all Jerusalem that the Messiah King was born because wise men asked this question in Jerusalem. He gave a prophetic word. God gave a prophetic word many years before that would give clear direction to those same wise men so that they would know where to look he made the same star reappear after it had disappeared and made it stand over the house, the place where Jesus was. And in all of this, God was fulfilling his word, not only, as Luke tells us, in sovereignly moving Caesar Augustus to proclaim a tax so that Mary and Joseph would travel to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there, as the prophet had said. But also, so that wise men who came from the east would go to Bethlehem and visit him and pay him honor and homage. And God not only was fulfilling Micah 5 and verse 2, but also 
God was sending Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah's light. Isaiah 60 says this, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. That, by the way, would be another good reason to refer to these men as kings. At the very least, they represent the kings that Isaiah spoke of as coming to visit the Messiah. Kings coming to the brightness of thy rising. Matthew shows us that the threats against Jesus were real and dangerous. Powerful forces gathered against him to destroy him. But let me also add that the real threat was not to Jesus. The real threat was that baby Jesus to the powers that be. That was the real threat. And we rejoice in that threat. God superintends in the birth of his son, protects him from those who would do him harm, provides for his needs through the wise men's gifts. By the way, I think it's reasonable to say that Mary and Joseph's trip and sojourning in Egypt was financed by the gift, the rich gift of these wise men. And God guarantees that his son will fulfill his work of redemption. There is no threat that could threaten to stop Christ in his purpose to bring salvation to the world. And so Matthew Henry says, in this chapter, we have the history of our Savior's infancy, where we find how early he began to suffer, and that in him, the word of righteousness was fulfilled before he himself began to fulfill all righteousness. The birth of Jesus posed an immediate threat to Israel's reigning authorities, both spiritual and civil. They were the usurpers. He was the authentic king and shepherd of Israel. Matthew shows us the immediate effect of his birth. The immediate effect his birth had on the world as he began the work of overthrowing the tyrants. A work, by the way, that he insists we continue. We carry that work on. Overthrowing tyrants. Matthew sets forward two sets of contrasts in this passage, and that's what I want to focus on. A contrast of authorities and a contrast of response. Let's take a look at these two contrasts. First of all, I want you to consider the contrast of authorities. We have here the usurper king versus the born king. The born king. Herod the Great was an Idumean, that is an Edomite. He was born in 73 BC and was approved to serve as king of Judea in 40 BC. The history of Herod the Great 
is a history of <clears throat> politicking and maneuvering in order to gain and acquire and maintain, hold on to power. Inherit the Great had appealed to Caesar Augustus and had endeared himself to Caesar Augustus in order to gain the throne of Israel and reign as king. He was, by the way, the only king in the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus did not allow other kings, but Herod the Great was such a manipulator and power broker that he was able to do this. It's interesting because our, uh, when I toured Israel uh, about a year ago, our tour guide is a huge fan of Herod the Great, and he told us right away, he said, I know that sounds strange to you, all, uh, but he said, you'll see, there's a reason they call him the Great. And, and he was right. Herod the Great was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant builder. He was a magnificent builder. The things that Herod the Great built, now understand, uh, we're impressed with buildings that stand for, you know, two, three hundred years. The things that Herod the Great built are still standing today, some of those things. The, the, the granite that he put, the granite stones that he put as the foundation to Herod's temple form the western wall, or what we sometimes call the wailing wall uh, in Israel, still standing. Not the wall itself, but the foundation that goes 50, 75 feet underground. And those bricks, some of them are as, as big as this wall right here, and as thick as half this room. And I mean solid. And they're, I mean, stacked on each other, and it's impressive, impressive. And his palace, now we went to visit his palace at, um, uh, um, at my mind went blank. Um, it's, the, it's the place where all Israel uh, gathered when, when Rome, in 70 AD, uh, when Rome, Masada. Yeah, Masada, he has a palace there that is still, um, standing today and impressive. I mean, just the luxury of it for that day was incredible. And the water systems that he developed and all of that. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. This is why he is called the Great. He faced many immediate threats to his reign and he crushed, ruthlessly crushed, all of those threats within three years of beginning to reign. He was fabulously wealthy. He guarded his throne with a ferocity that cost many people their lives, including, as I mentioned, two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, who he had executed in 4 BC, possibly about three years after Jesus was born and the same year that he died. And that same year, at the same time, he also executed his wife, Jewish wife, Miriamne, who was a descendant from the Maccabeans. 
He gave an order that on the day of his death, all the chief priests and rulers of Israel were to be rounded up and executed so that there would be mourning instead of celebration after he died. Like he knew that the people of Israel were going to celebrate his death. And so he wanted them to mourn. So he demanded an atrocity in order to bring mourning to the people. He loved power. He levied heavy taxes against Israel. And the Jews saw him as a usurper of the throne. He could never change their mind, even though he did many favors for the Jewish people, including building them a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he represents the kind of tyrant that has been so common in our world. And now came a true threat to his throne, a threat that he would not be able to overcome. Herod was not wrong to recognize Jesus as a rival. The wise men entered Jerusalem asking, literally, this is their question, where is the born king of Israel? Where is the born king? Think of how that would strike the ears of a man who feels in his bones that he is a usurper. Huh? Where is the born king of Israel? That's what they're asking. They did not ask, where is the one who will become the king of the Jews? They did not ask, by the way, where is the one who will be the spiritual king of the Jews? Doesn't ask that. He, they asked, where is the born king of the Jews? Jesus did not ascend to the throne. The throne was his already. He came to claim it. Some might be tempted to argue with Herod. Herod, you're taking it too far. His kingdom is not of this world, right? Oh, no. His kingdom includes this world. This world is not the sum of his kingdom. It is not the totality of his kingdom. But this world is part of his kingdom. And his claim is not just on Israel, but on the entire world through Israel. Herod was not mistaken. Jesus came to overthrow a tyrant. He had an authentic claim to Israel's throne, which Matthew has established. And the prophet had promised in Isaiah 9 and verse 7, as the kids quoted this morning in their program, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end from this day upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, pardon me, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is God's promise. So when the uh, Handel's Messiah proclaims, and he shall reign forever and ever, this is not hyperbole. This is not Christian exaggeration. This is Bible. This is what God has promised to us. No surprise then 
Herod was troubled to hear that a born king, one who had a legitimate claim to the throne unlike his, had been born. It is evident that he immediately began to plot how he might find this babe and kill him. Like immediately he is concerned with finding this born king, king and eliminating him. By the way, I'm going to pause and point out to you that killing babies has always been the practice of evil tyrannies. Yes. Always. And is today as well. Yes. They hate babies because they hate the babe of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And so then we have a second contrast that Matthew is drawing for us. The contrast between the usurper king and the born king of Israel. But then also there's a second contrast that he's making. It's a little more subtle, a little less obvious, but it's a contrast nonetheless. And I want you to follow with me while I show it to you. It is a contrast between the hireling shepherds and the good shepherd. Herod the king gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. All right? Notice this in verse 4. He gathered, I don't think all the priests, but the chief priests. All right? So he's, he's gathering, I, I think it was the Sanhedrin that he called. Um, but this would have been the chief priests and scribes. Now the scribes are not those who copy scripture, but those who teach it. See, and that, by the way, is interesting that the, the teachers are called scribes. Uh, something I've been, I mean, it's a, a side note, but something I've been pointing out to you that the way the Word of God is kept pure is by expositional preaching, expository preaching that proclaims to you line upon line, precept upon precept, the truth of God's Word. All right, and that's the way it was done in the Old Testament. So <clears throat> the chief priests were Sadducees almost entirely. And the Sadducees were indifferent about the coming of the Messiah. They didn't look for him. They didn't really take it even literal. <laughs> the scribes, who were the teachers of the law, were Pharisees. And they did look for a literal Messiah coming. Right? So you have these rival factions, and it's curious that Herod calls them both. They both, by the way, made up the, the, the Sanhedrin. They agree on one thing. The Pharisees and Sadducees agree on one thing. If they agree on nothing else, they agree on one thing. They hate Herod. They want him off the throne. And Herod knows that. Now, I think that it's reasonable to say that Herod brought both factions in at the same time. He may not have, but he certainly brought them both. And the reason he did is because he wants to make sure they're not going to run a trick play on him. He wants to make sure he's going to be able to find this babe, the, the born king of Israel. <clears throat> and it's interesting that both the indifferent Sadducees and the invested Pharisees knew the answer, and if you read it right according to Matthew, 
They didn't struggle to find the answer either. They knew well the prophecy of Micah the prophet. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5 and verse 2. And so Herod had his answer. And it is an authoritative answer. The chief priests and scribes acknowledge, in fact, the authenticity of the answer. They base their claim that the Messiah would be born in, or found in Bethlehem. They base it on a plain reading of the Old Testament. For thus it is written by the prophet, they said, that it is written is a perfect passive indicative. It literally means it stands written for all time. It is one of the phrases in scripture that is a reference point for the way God views his word. It stands <coughs> written. Not to change or be changed. Not to be lost. It stands written. But, <clears throat> despite their authoritative certainty, I want to point out to you that their answer communicates more than what they intended. And I want you to notice why. Would you hold your finger in Matthew 2, and would you look at Micah 5? Because I want you to see the difference between what Micah prophesied in Micah 5 and verse 2, and what the prop or the uh, the chief priests and scribes quoted in Matthew two and verse six, I want you to notice the difference. Right, there are several differences here, and I want you to notice it. And by the way, um, there's not like textual corruption here that we have to deal with. There's not a um, misquoting, and there's not a, you know, some would like to say that they were quoting from the Septuagint or something like that. It's not the case. They are, in fact, combining. They don't say Micah here. In, in Matthew 2, verse 5, they don't say Micah. They say the prophet. But actually, they're combining two, well, two verses of Scripture one of which we wouldn't necessarily consider to be a prophecy. But I'm going to get to that. All right? Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, you're there. They don't quote it exactly. There's a difference, for example, between Micah saying, though thou be little, and in Matthew saying, art not the least. Okay? Micah said, though thou be little, Matthew said, you're not the least. All right, so two different things, but, and there's, a, there's we could dig into it and get more. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot there, but just that Micah is saying you're little, insignificant, but you're not the most insignificant, according to Matthew. 
I'm not talking here, and I don't want to really focus on the difference between Micah saying among the thousands of Judah and the chief priests and scribes saying among the princes of Judah. I'll say more on that in a moment. Those differences are easy to explain. They don't add a lot to what is said. But I'm talking about the ending here. Micah says, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And they say, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And that's very different. And they aren't misquoting this. And understand that their quotation of it is stamped by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is telling you that they are understanding this rightly. The quote, the end there in Matthew, sounds eerily similar to what the men of Hebron said when they approached David about becoming their king. You remember David, we've just gone through this not too long ago. David was uh, the king first of Judah, right? Judah crowned him. Well, uh, after Saul died and after Ishbosheth died, now the men of Judah came to David and they crowned him king, not after Ishbosheth was ruling in the ten northern tribes. The kingdom of Judah came to David and said, Would you become our king? And this is what they said to him in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. Okay, so notice the similarities between that and Matthew 2 and verse 6. A governor that shall rule, a shepherd that shall feed. The chief priests and scribes knew their Old Testament and knew it well. Micah lived in a day when David's royal seed had grown vile and debased. Micah prophesied that the day when David's royal line would be cut down like a dead tree, that day had come when Micah was prophet in Israel. Isaiah had prophesied that that dead tree would be cut down and that out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot would come forth, a branch from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11, verse 1. So though Bethlehem was insignificant among the cities of Judah, so small, in fact, that it didn't even get mentioned when Joshua listed the cities that would be part of Judah's inheritance. Today, it is famous to us as the birthplace of the Messiah. But the chief priests and scribes changed thousands of Judah to princes. 
thousands in Micah points to the clans of Judah. Each of those clans would have a leader. And now in Matthew, we see that the Messiah isn't compared to the clans, isn't over the clans alone, but over the leaders, the princes of those clans, and that he would be the ruler to unite them, the ruler that Israel longed for. Micah's prophecy, like most of the other prophets, took a long time to establish the way Israel's leaders and rulers were the ones who led Israel astray. But that is Micah's point. Micah's point is the beginning. Of, in fact, the book of Micah, as I said, divides very naturally between your rulers, your leaders, your religious authorities have led you astray. And now Micah is saying, God is promising that he is going to raise again from the dead the royal seed of David. The royal seed is going to be cut down, but there's going to be life. There's going to be a shoot from that stump, and that shoot is going to lead you right. This is what they're saying. Now, <clears throat> the religious authorities in Israel led them astray because the rulers of Israel served themselves. They were like a bunch of little Herods in the days of Micah. It's ironic, in fact, that the way Israel's leaders in the time of the prophets were self-serving and self-seeking, <clears throat> and because of that, they led Israel astray, and then, in the time of Christ, God allowed a usurper king who would be self-serving and self-seeking and would be oppressive to the self-seeking leaders of Israel. God allowed him, Herod, to ascend to the throne. If Herod had not been there, all Herod really managed to do was to hold back the religious authorities in Israel who would have crushed the people if Herod had not done so. That's what was happening there. So in Micah's day, you have a bunch of little Herods running around crushing the people, oppressing the people. And this is what Micah says in his indictment against the rulers of Israel. Micah 2 verse 1, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. This is the accusation against the rulers of Israel. In Micah 2 verse 8 and 9, even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robes with the garments from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. In Micah 3 verse 1, And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? who hate the good, 
and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones, and chop them in pieces, as for the pot, and as flesh within the cauldron. That's Micah 3. So these are the accusations against the rulers, against the leaders of Israel, that you devour the people. And then we come to Matthew. And in Matthew 23, Jesus said very something very similar to that about the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither ye suffer them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater condemnation. A few verses later, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Now this is the accusation. So this is, this is the point here, that Israel has these usurpers, not just a usurper king in Herod, but these little Herods, these little tyrants running around, oppressing the people. They're supposed to be feeding the people as shepherds, but instead they are devouring the people as wolves. And in contrast to that, and see, that this is what Matthew is setting up because of the quotation that he gives from Micah and the way it is quoted from Micah, he's setting this up to show you that Jesus is the good shepherd who will feed his people, the one who gives his life for the people instead of the people giving their life for him. This is the beauty of the gospel message. <clears throat> and so Micah, when he prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, is promising that the house of David is going to be cut off, but it's not going to be eliminated. Israel will not be destroyed because the house of David will rise again. That's the context of Micah 5. God is about to start all over again. It will be through the house of David, but it will not be the house of David. The Messiah won't be anything like Israel's self-serving leaders. The Messiah will come for God. He will do the will of God. That's the beauty of what the chief priests and scribes answer Herod. They don't even know what they're saying. They spoke better than they knew. They were the ones who had the answers, but they didn't lead. That's the contrast. They devoured the people instead of feeding the people. Jesus would feed the people. They would devour him, but his flesh would be 